invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We'll be finishing up uh, Luke chapter 3 uh, by specifically considering the verses, uh, verses 21 through 38. So Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. We'll be considering again the baptism of Jesus. We briefly touched upon that last week. But we'll also consider how this genealogy of, of Christ actually has something to say to us in our own Christian life. And one thing you'll, you should have noticed at this point in, in Luke's gospel is there's been this theme in these first three chapters between John and Jesus. The comparison, the contrast, and, and John, his whole ministry was a ministry of preparation. He was the opening act that gave way to Christ. And this evening, we see Jesus officially beginning his earthly ministry. So I'd ask you to, to turn your attention to the reading of God's work, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. Hear now the word of the Lord. Excuse me, verses 21 through 38. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Monathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Monathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kasim, the son of Al-Madam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikayim, the son of Meli, the son of Mena, the son of Matathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surug, the son of Rehu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, 
the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, the tale of two Adams, that's what I've titled this sermon, and you're probably wondering what is he going to say about this genealogy of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is one of those texts that's very, that's very much a flyover text. When you're reading your, your Bible, I, I wouldn't imagine most of us spend a whole lot of time on a text such as this. But Luke is putting this in Scripture for a reason. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, including this. And what Luke wants us to know is that the, all of Scripture can be summarized as the tale of two Adams. The tale of two Adams. That's his point here. In fact, I'd like to illustrate this tale of two Adams by using the context of a basketball game. Now, I grew up playing basketball. I'm still a basketball fan. And my favorite moment in a basketball game is when it's a close game and you're nearing the end of regulation. There's a few seconds left. It's a tie game. The coach calls a timeout. And he's in the huddle drawing up that play for the game-winning shot. And he turns to the best player in the huddle and he says, you're the guy. The jubilance, the sadness of an organization, a school, many, many fans lies upon the shoulder of this one player in this one moment who has one shot. That's the scene, I think, of what's going on in this tale of two Adams. The first Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning of the Bible, was placed in this Garden of Eden. He had this, this call to exercise dominion, to, uh, to, to labor in that garden, to obey God's law. And he represented all mankind. Rather than just having mere fans, he had the eternal happiness or death in the balance of all of his descendants. That is, he had one shot to win the game, to bring everlasting victory, eternal life. But what happens? Well, he misses it, right? He doesn't, he doesn't make that shot. He doesn't bring everlasting victory and, and life for, for his people. But God graciously extends things into overtime. And we see now in our text, there's this new Adam that's checked into the game. Same situation, a few seconds left. Coaches call a timeout. And this text tells us who it is who's going to be taking that last shot. All that to say, the main point we see in this text is God's affirmation of Christ as the second Adam, this new Adam who's come to bring salvation for his people. Or to put it another way, God has chosen Christ to end the game, to hit that game-winning shot. So what I would like us to consider then uh, this evening is the failure of the first Adam. So how the first Adam failed to hit that shot. We'll consider that in more detail. Then we'll consider how Christ hit the game-winning shot, or he was appointed, confirmed, to 
make the game-winning shot, and then we'll consider how we factor into this tale of two atoms. So in Luke's mind, in order to understand why Christ is on the scene, why Christ had to come, we need to know something about the first Adam. We need to know how the first Adam failed in his job. That is, we need to know how the first Adam failed to hit the game-winning shot. So you may be wondering, well, okay, I get the, the tale of two Adams, but where is Adam in this text? Well, Luke is connecting Christ and Adam in the genealogy. That's one of his purposes. You may also be thinking, well, is that very distinctive? If Luke is trying to give a genealogy of Christ, it would seem to make sense that he's going to bring it back to Adam, who is the father of everyone. However, we have two instances of genealogies of Christ, in Matthew and in Luke. It's very interesting to compare them. In Matthew, it's traced back to Abraham. And Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And you're left wondering, well, why is that? I think you can explain the differences by knowing the distinct audiences that Matthew and Luke were writing to. Matthew's writing to primarily a Jewish audience. And so he's emphasizing the fact that Christ is of the seed of Abraham, the father of Jews and, and the father of all who believe. But Luke, he's writing to Gentiles. And the point he's trying to make here is that Christ has come not just to be the savior of the Jewish people. He's not just come for a distinct ethnic group. He's come for the nations, for people from every tribe, language, and people group. Why? Where's this connection? Well, Adam is the father of everyone. His sin has been inherited to every person, no matter their ethnicity. So the point is, Christ has come to bring salvation to all people groups. And furthermore, it's not surprising that Luke is making this point. We read in Acts that Luke accompanied Paul in, in his missionary journey. And Paul is the apostle who really takes this idea of the tale of two atoms and develops it. We see that in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. So it's not surprising then that Luke, who probably was influenced by Paul, seeks to make this distinct point as he is relaying uh, not only the baptism, but the genealogy of Christ. In fact, I'd like us... I'd like you to, to, to hear a couple of verses from Romans chapter 5. That's one of the passages where Paul really develops this idea, this tale of two Adams. Paul teaches that Adam was a representative of, of every single person. In fact, he says in uh, verse 12, he says, Therefore sin came into the world through one man. Then verse 18, Paul says, Therefore one trespass led to condemnation for all men. You know, just as that basketball player has holds upon his shoulders the jubilance or the sadness of, of many, many fans, Adam was in a similar place. His performance had, a, had consequences for all of his descendants. Now, of course, we know that his decision could negatively impact his descendants. And that's what we see explicitly in Romans 5, that in, in his sin, sin we all. We inherited all of, all of his original sin. 
But something we, we don't always hear as often is that Adam had the opportunity to bring eternal life to his descendants as well. He had the opportunity to bring everlasting victory for those whom he represented. And we see that threat of death explicitly in Genesis 2. The day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die, not just physically, but eternally. Right? There's, there's a threat of eternal death. And where do we see that promise of life in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, there's other trees in that garden. One of those trees is the tree of life. And that tree of life not only signifies life in the garden, but it also points forward to a much greater life, everlasting life, eternal life. It's important to note that Adam wasn't in eternal life. We're not looking forward to going back to the garden. Because in the garden, there was still a possibility of sin. Every day that Adam woke up could be a day in which he inherited death. What we're looking forward to is, a, is a, a time and a place in which it will be impossible to sin. So that tree of life pointed Adam to that reward, what he was looking forward to. Furthermore, God cre- created in six days and rested the seventh. Why, why this pattern? Well, he did this to give us a pattern. Not only to pattern Adam's we- individual weeks, but there was also a more macro purpose to this. It showed Adam that in order to enter the eternal seventh day Sabbath rest, work that needed to be done. You work for a rest. And very from, from the very beginning, we see that salvation is by works. If you're one of the two Adams. That is, Adam had the opportunity. He was selected by God to be able to end the game in regulation, to bring in eternal life for all of his descendants. But what happens? Well, we know that story. He, he misses the shot, right? He, he disobeys God's law, and rather than bringing everlasting victory, he brings death. However, God in his grace, he delays final judgment. Yes, he curses man, curses the ground, but yet there still be Fruit, uh, fruit and food that comes from it. He curses the womb of the woman, but there will still be children. He, do, he extends things into overtime, as it were. And in Genesis 3.15, we have that first proclamation of the gospel, where there, there will be this singular male offspring from the woman who will come to crush the head of the serpent. That is, from Genesis 3.15, God is promising another Adam, a second Adam, that is, the son of Adam who will come to do what the first Adam failed to do. And this is what the genealogy, one of the points that this genealogy is wanting to make is, as Luke very intentionally brings things back to Adam himself, the son of Adam, the son of God. Christ is that second Adam. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. And the rest of the Old Testament could be thought of the first four minutes of a five-minute overtime. You're constantly wondering, is this the guy who's going to bring it home to bring us to victory? Abraham, David, the prophets. And we realize, no, these aren't the guys. Someone better, someone greater has to come. We need the second Adam to check into the game. So this leads us then to to my second point, which is the the confirmation of the second Adam. The confirmation of the second Adam. So if you look with me in your Bibles, uh, at verses 21 and 22 as we go, 
uh, backwards a, a couple of verses. Luke says, now when all of the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. As I mentioned last week, verses 21 and 22, Jesus' baptism by John has a lot of imagery. We considered it last week from from the angle of of baptism as a double-edged sword and and Jesus' future baptism on the cross. But here we can consider it as that moment in overtime. Tie game, few seconds left in the clock, the coach calls the timeout, drawing up the play, suspense in the huddle, who is going to take this last shot? And the coach speaks, turns to the best player and says, you're the guy. It's on your shoulders. God speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. You are the one who has this mission as the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. This is that confirmation from the Father that Christ is the one. He's the one who is called to bring everlasting victory. And it's important to note that this is a confirmation, not appointment. God has appointed Christ to this task from before the foundations of the world. But this is that public confirmation that Christ is the one. He's the one that we've been looking forward to. The Old Testament has been looking forward to. And this declaration that God makes that Jesus is his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. This is, this is the language. This is royal language. We see this in Psalm chapter 2. We see this with the Davidic covenant. This shows us that the true king of God's people has arrived on the scene. And then this, this imagery or the statement, I should say, of Jesus being anointed with the Spirit. One thing that we see throughout the Old Testament is that the prophets of God received the Holy Spirit as their commission, as anointing, to go do what God has called them to do. In fact, they, they would have this vision uh, through the Spirit, and they would be raptured up, as it were, into the very heavenly courtroom of God, as God would commission them to go bring the Word of God to His people. So we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophetic line. He is the prophet of God that's come to announce good news. In fact, Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the servant of the Lord, which is Christ. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. If you're an Old Testament saying, you're wondering, how do I know when the Messiah has arrived on the scene? Well, he'll have the spirit of God upon him. In fact, we see three instances in, in the Gospels of the Spirit of God coming upon Christ. In his conception, Luke 1.35, that the Spirit overshadowed Mary in, in the conception. Here in the baptism, and then as he begins his earthly ministry, and then in the resurrection. This is a significant moment. If you look with me then in verse 23, Luke states that, Uh, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. His earthly ministry then is beginning here in his baptism. 
the mission is mission is to pick up those broken pieces that the first Adam left and to do what Adam failed to do, to bring that everlasting victory. And so in the context of, of Luke 3, we see in the baptism that God has selected Jesus to this task. And you wonder, well, okay, why, why is he picked? And then he goes to this genealogy and shows, well, it's because the son of Adam has failed. In fact, in Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, Matthew says that Jesus was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness. That righteousness which is needed to enter into everlasting life and Sabbath rest. And next week's passage, Luke continues this imagery, this comparison, this tale of two Adams as Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God and is tempted by the devil in the wilderness in, in, a, in a way that very much reenacts Adam's temptation of the devil in the garden. But whereas Adam failed to live according to the Word of God, we see that Christ lives by every Word of God. Now, Jesus' baptism, this moment, is not, is not like that moment when the ball is going through the hoop and the buzzer goes off and victory is ours. No, this is, this is the huddle. The play still needs to happen, right? Christ still needs to fulfill his earthly ministry. He still needs, Good Friday still needs to happen. Easter still needs to happen. We have that confirmation. Christ is the one who's going to do it. He's taking that last shot. You may ask yourselves, where is our place in this tale of two Adams? So this leads us to uh, my third point. Where's our place in this script, as it were? Well, as I mentioned, Luke is writing this gospel to a primarily uh, Gentile audience. I would imagine that most, if not all of us, are, are Gentiles. And so the media application is belief. Luke is writing this to... Gentiles to, to prove and show to them that Christ is the one selected by God to accomplish this mission. So believe. And yeah, we may be thinking, yeah, I believe. I believe this. I believe that Jesus is the one. I believe that he came and has earned and accomplished my salvation. However, experientially, I think that we can so often slip into a mindset of thinking that the, this weight, this weight that the Savior bore, this weight of having to take the last shot, as it were, falls upon us, falls upon our shoulders. Last spring, a new documentary came out about Michael Jordan and the Bulls dynasty during the 1990s. It was great timing during the pandemic when all sports were uh, suspended. And there was one moment in particular that, that stood out. And, you know, Jordan won six NBA ch uh, championships during the 1990s. He won three at the beginning of the decade. Then he took a year and a half, two-year hiatus to try his hand at baseball. And then he came back and won three more championships. Well, after his first retirement, and the first year after he, was, uh, he had left to play baseball, the Bulls were in the playoffs. And they were playing the New York Knicks, which was a, a big rival for them at the time. And it was one of these situations which I've been describing. Tie game, a uh, few seconds left, 
Phil Jackson, their coach, calls a timeout. He's drawing up this play, and Scottie Pippen, who was the, the second-hand man when Jordan was there, has now been the guy leading the Bulls. And Phil Jackson is writing up this play, and Pippen's thinking, though, this is going to me, no doubt about it. But Phil had another, another idea in mind. He actually has it go to someone else. It's got to be Pippen's outrage. In fact, he checks out of the game and doesn't even play that final play. And ironically enough, the guy goes on and hits the shot and the Bulls win. My point in bringing this up is I think sometimes we can act in a way that's analogous to how Scottie Pippen acted. We can think that we are the ones that need to take the last shot. But rather than just checking ourselves out of the game, we react by trying to take things into our own hands. Now we may, we may think of this in terms of our justification, where we slip into that mindset of thinking that somehow I have the burden, or at least part of the burden, of, of making myself worthy and acceptable before God. In those cases, we need, to, we need to remember that Christ has that burden. God has selected him to accomplish that task, to bear that burden. But I also think that we are tempted to, to think this way in terms of our own and others' sanctification. This may look like suddenly thinking that it is our job to change people. And we take that burden upon ourselves. This might be uh, your own kids, family members, friends, co-workers. We have to recognize this mission that God has given Christ. Yes, it was to bring eternal life and justification, but it also was to bring sanctification, which is the beginning of the new creation. You know, Titus 2, Paul says that Christ has come not just to redeem us, but to sanctify for himself a people a purified people. You know, just as in evangelism, we should recognize that when we're sharing our faith, sharing the gospel, it's not ultimately up to our eloquence, our wisdom, that's going to convert a sinful, depraved heart. The Spirit of God needs to change them. In a similar way, we need to recognize that our sanctification, sanctification other people's sanctification, it's not on us to bear that burden. Christ, through the Spirit, is the one who effectuates that change. And this doesn't mean that we no longer strive for holiness and we somehow are lackadaisical and, and, and lazy about such things. No, we still strive for holiness. We still are intentional with relationships in our life. But what this means is that we no longer have to bear that burden. And this should bring about a level of freedom. We don't have the weight of taking the last shot upon us. Christ has taken that, and he's made it, as we know, as we will keep reading in, in this gospel message. I think a good indicator of whether or not we are bearing that burden or not, or whether or not we've truly let Christ take the yoke and the, the weight of, of that task is our prayer life. When, we reckon, when we're struggling, when we uh, maybe are struggling with sin, recognize change that needs to happen, recognize change that needs to happen to someone else, what is our first impulse? Is it to go to God in prayer, or is it to try to anxiously take things into our own hands? Pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. And sometimes the Lord allows us to struggle 
to teach us that we are not self-sufficient. We are not sovereigns over our, our life, but he is. He's the one who produces change in all of our hearts. You know, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. Right after it gets done ex expositing the Ten Commandments, it says, well, can anyone even keep this? It says, no. Even the holiest of men in this life have a small beginning of perfect conformity unto the law of God. And then it says, well, if that's the case, why are we preaching the law so strictly? What's the point? And the answer it says, so that we without ceasing diligently ask God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. When we see that need for change, it should drive us in prayer to the only one who can produce change in our lives. And this is why we need to constantly be soaking ourselves in this gospel message, in the realization that in that huddle, as it were, God has selected Christ to accomplish this mission. Otherwise, we will slowly slip into the, the thinking like, like Scotty Pippen, that the coach has unknowingly called our number to do what we were never called to do. Well, you have just heard it, the Tale of Two Adams, basketball edition. Therefore, beloved in the Lord, look to Christ, not only to make you worthy of God's presence, but also to effectuate the change in your life and the lives of those around you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have indeed sent him into this world 2,000 years ago, to be that second Adam, to, to do what that first Adam failed to do and to clean up the pieces, to die on the cross for the sin of not only the first Adam, but for every sin that has proceeded ever since. We pray that you would remind us often of this good news, and this good news would lead us to a life full of good works, full of fruitfulness. It's in his name we pray. Amen.